it seems completely nonsensical for us to say that a function, a linear regression is racist. That's basically what we're saying when we're saying that the AI is racist itself, right? We're saying a mathematical function is sexist and that's, it's absurd. Um, and so we need to, we need to realize how absurd that is and then say, well, what's actually going on here? Oh, hi. I didn't hear you there. I was too busy listening to that very provocative opening quote. I'm James Kotecki. Welcome to my show. It's called Kotecki on Tech. I interview very smart people about big ideas that are changing the world. And honestly, I cannot wait for you to hear today's episode. Catherine Hume is my guest. She is an expert in artificial intelligence. She is VP of Product and Strategy at Integrate.ai, which applies AI in the business world. And she's also very thoughtful about how AI applies to our society at large. I'm saying she can philosophize, she can technologize, and she can monetize. Yes, my friends, Catherine Hume is a triple threat. That makes me triply excited to share our conversation. I'm James Kotecki, and this is Kotecki on Tech. I'm strange in the space in that my background comes from uh, both mathematics and comparative literature. So I started off my career considering a path in academia and uh, spent a lot of time thinking about the scientific revolution in the 17th century. So um, everything that Descartes and Newton and Leibniz did. And I think what's interesting and valuable about that work is that, not that it has anything to do with machine learning purchasing today, (laughs) but that um, I've thought really hard about how cultures adapt to new scientific developments. And so, you know, from a big picture perspective, really focus on the cultural changes that we're starting to experience as these new technologies, new technologies like artificial intelligence are applied. What specific uh, changes do you do you think about and focus on the most? So I think there's how people tend to think about AI and then the real changes that companies and organizations face when they start an AI project. So on the first side, um, if you open up, you know, Wired Magazine or the New York Times or whatever it may be, a lot of the popular reporting on AI will talk about machines becoming super intelligent and somehow surpassing the capabilities of human minds and the human race. And often there's an element of fear in these narratives where we feel like we're about to lose control of systems that will, you know, be more intelligent than we are. The term AI itself is is a is pretty confusing at times, but um, <laughs> a lot of the sort of recent advancements come from the subfield called machine learning, which are basically, uh, it's sort of applied statistics with computations. So you can take in a bunch of data and then it's all around optimization. So you sort of specify some task and what these models do is they, when presented with data, find the best function, mathematical function, so like y equals f of x, represent that data and perform on some task. That's all it is, Uh, but that's, you know, that's, all it is is actually super powerful because there's lots of tasks that can be represented as optimization problems, even things like perception. So like our ability to show a picture of a cat and have the machine learning algorithm make a probabilistic guess that this is indeed a cat. People are thinking about these machines as smarter than us because a lot of the headline breaking stories will be around things like AlphaGo or uh, the Dota bot, which is just rec- was just recently built by OpenAI. There's Google Duplex. So this uh, ability for systems to make phone calls and they sound as if they're human. Right. Um, and it's shaping our imagination of, of systems that 
basically are going to extend us to the next level of evolution, right? So we, we sort of start off as uh, intelligence starts off in the realm of inanimate objects and sort of plants are smarter than rocks and animals are smarter than plants and humans are smarter than animals. And we view this as a linear progression yeah. all the way up to some sort of superhuman god-like capability. Um, I find those narratives to be not all that helpful uh, to enterprises that are trying to actually grapple with the challenges <laughs> around AI. I think the yeah. more helpful stuff is when we think, oh God, these are optimization tools, which means they're not certain, right? They don't, they don't, they don't output answers that are like 100% certain. They output things on a probability spectrum, which means when we apply them, they can make mistakes. And we have to think about what those mistakes might mean for the business while also getting excited about the potential opportunities of sort of changing the DNA of a company from something based on rules to something based on really smart probabilities. So you're not saying that that idea or that dream of a super intelligence is necessarily untrue. It sounds like you're saying it's just not necessarily helpful in the immediate business context that many of us have to work in day to day to make this thing incrementally move forward. Yeah, so I think that's right. And then I also think on the flip side, it can be dangerous to focus on something like super intelligence as the the risk around AI, because mm -hmm. there's so many more important socially relevant risks that exist today, right? So um, the examples that I focus on a lot are things related to fairness of machine learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, these tools are uh, built upon data, data carries traces of past actions. And basically, when you're when you're building a system that's using the past to try to predict something that would happen in the future, that's all well and good if the future, if you want the future to look like the past. But often in instances where there's been, say, a sub-community that's been marginalized that hasn't been receiving good treatment from, uh, you know, well, from either a public institution or in a business context, you might be missing out on market opportunities if you've in the past historically served some group of the population. You know, you sort of reach a saturation point in terms of how many more products that that group of the population might be able to buy. And uh, if you rely upon machine learning, you're going to sort of get stuck in this local minimum of what you've done in the past as opposed to mm -hmm. potentially exploring uh, new opportunities and also treating treating people more fairly. Uh, there's a the headline of an article you were quoted in in a in a publication called The Walrus. I think summed this up, which was the headline is how we made AI as racist and sexist as humans. I mean, do you agree with it at that? That's kind of a headline level of, of what you're saying. But do you agree with that kind of headline explanation? And and can you give me another kind of specific example of what uh, of what you're talking about here? Yeah, sure. So there's uh, tons of examples of of instances where machine learning has been, quote, racist or sexist in the past. I do, as you said, this is the headline level, so it's 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 very startling language mm -hmm. so as to grab attention. Mm -hmm. But um, so I'll give an example from way back in 2012-13 when Google was first implementing computer vision algorithms at scale. So they trained uh, these algorithms to work on various images in their data set. And uh, when it came up to classifying, you know, is this a puppy? Is this a cat? Is this a glass of wine? The system did just fine. And then it was presented with an image of an African-American woman's face and it classified her as a gorilla. And this, uh, you know, sort of makes us cringe when we hear something like that. Mm, yeah. These systems make mistakes like this all the time. So I, prior to joining Integrate, I worked for a New York City-based company called Fast Forward Labs, and we built a computer uh, vision system. And it used to always misclassify the New York City subway system as a correctional institution, right? Because the <laughs> the bars in the in the turnstiles look kind of ah. like a prison, right? So we hear that and we laugh. And there's a joke also, to be made there for sure. Yeah, for sure. And it used to also classify babies as neckties because there weren't a lot of babies in 
in the ImageNet database that we use to train the system. So you hear things like that and it's hilarious. It's it's almost surreal in the mistakes mm -hmm. that are made. Yeah. But when the, the machine, of course, doesn't have sort of a grounding in the social sensitivities of context. So the same sort of mistake, which is classifying an African-American woman as a gorilla, right, based on some of the aspects and features in the data set, that really is just unacceptable in terms of our social norms. And so, you know, that's 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 one example. And this going back to our first question related to in thinking about risks of AI and the narratives we say and obstacles to innovation, companies get nervous in applying these algorithms at scale, given the fact that they there is risk that they might sort of make a mistake when they're let loose in the wild. And that could alienate a customer if a prediction's made like that. Google's algorithm says uh, this racist thing. Uh, that's how people would probably understand it now. Uh, do you see any evidence that people are going to change the way that they understand how these things can or should work? Well, sure. I mean, at the level of how we conceive of these technologies, it seems completely nonsensical for us to say that a function, a linear regression is racist. Like that. Think mm -hmm. about that. Like, let's articulate right. that sentence. We're like, no, that doesn't make much sense. And that's that's basically what we're saying when we're saying that the AI is racist itself, right? We're saying a mathematical function is sexist, and that's it's absurd. Um, and so we need to we need to realize how absurd that is, and then say, well, what's actually going on here, right? And mm -hmm. um, in the example of Google, I, I think the next thing is there's a lot of focus on the algorithms. Uh, people are so excited about deep learning algorithms and all of the theoretical advancements that are coming out of the machine learning community. And they tend not to get as excited about the basic groundwork that is often 90% of the game in applied AI. So collecting data, representing that data in a way that it's tractable for the algorithms, putting the models into production. So sort of once we've built out this first guess, like guessing tool that, that can be used to make predictions, we then put it out in the wild and it's gonna learn over time as it gets access to new data. There's choices that developers can make on how frequently they update the models, be that in real time or you know every month. Um, and these all have significant impact on how racist or sexist the algorithms might be. So I think there's, uh, there's sort of a, a duty for the data science community to start to educate themselves on where things can go wrong here so that they're not just focused on the narrow technical question. Um, and also, it's not up to them either, to the technologists, to become sort of ethicists and philosophers here. There just needs to be the right dialogue between people who have thought more about that and those kind mm -hmm. of questions so that they can say, ooh, when you're going to collect your data, you should think, you should have this in mind because here's a potential risk. So it's really, it's a team sport, right? Um, yeah. And it's all about making sure that we're talking on the same page. Because as long as the philosopher thinks that AI is a set of like a you know super intelligent agent, and the machine learning scientist thinks that this is a statistical model, there's no real common ground to have a dialogue that could lead to sort of tractable solutions to problems. When I read uh, Max Tegmark's uh, Life 3.0, he was kind of talking about some of these same ideas about how we need to have more people in these conversations because this is about to be a huge deal of, of completely changing our society and our world. And if it's just the technical people involved, that's a very small percentage of the overall human family that needs to be involved in these very deep, very philosophical, ethical conversations. And I think, um, I wonder though, uh, do you feel like, time is running out for us to address these? At a, is, are we going to come to a point where uh, things start moving so quickly or so exponentially that if we don't address, for example, biases right now, then they're just going to be baked into the system and the system is going to be too powerful or too pervasive to uh, be able to make those changes? 
It's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, my take on how technology evolves is that the social ramifications and impact of tools is always very different from the way in which we imagine it when the first, when the capabilities first come around. And here I'm inspired by uh, Tim Harford, who used to write for the Financial Times. He wrote a book, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, and goes through through 50 examples, ranging from toilet paper to birth control, where there was sort of how we imagined this technology would shape society versus where the impact actually ended up landing. And the most current example for us that you know that we see these days is the use of social media tools really far beyond the initial intended purpose, which was like to share information and pictures with a small group of friends. And so for me, um, it's less like, oh my God, things are going to go so fast and we're going to lose control, but more it's completely impossible because humanity is too complex. The future is, it grows non-linearly. Um, it's, it's always outside the scope and purview of our imagination. So it's always going to be slightly out of our control by design. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't innovate. And it also doesn't mean that we shouldn't view this as an opportunity for us to think really hard about what we value and then uh, take the agency that we do have to design systems that you know, that emphasize human connectivity and love as opposed to just pure productivity and gain, if that's what we want, right? If that's what we value as a society. If on the other hand, it's, it's, this is all just a game of sort of, you know, making things cost less and automating as fast as we can, right? If it's, if it's purely from a capitalistic perspective, then that's a choice too. Um, but you know, it's, it's, technology doesn't have agency. Um, we do. So, uh, so I feel like we, we can be empowered to, to really think, think critically about which, you know, which values we want to maintain and also potentially which human values are, we're ready to evolve thanks to new technologies. Um, huh. We need not keep everything from the past. I think there's a lot of stuff that was you know, contingent upon the technology and communications infrastructure that existed in the past, and we could be open to exploring something new. What's one value that you wouldn't mind jettisoning, jettisoning thanks to technology? That's a great question. I mean, you know, I'm a woman working in technology, so there's lots of uh, inherited uh, stale concepts related to sort of the, the roles of different genders, different ethnicities in the workplace. Um, and, you know, you say, does that relate to technology? Well, if I go back to Tim Hartford, um, probably yes. You know, uh, the balance of work, right? If it goes back to basically the basic core human needs, we need to eat, we need to have shelter, you know, mm-hmm. um, we probably need love. And uh, in the way in which, uh, you know, different uh, partnerships were structured in the past to take care of the family and also get a job, you know, that's, that's sort of evolved, I believe, thanks to certain types of technologies, not AI, but other types of technologies. And, you know, when we are, we're catching up, our, our ideologies are always catching up with sort of the infrastructure that's, that's, that's technically possible. Um, and, you know, we just have to sort of be constantly aware of the fact that there's all these things that we inherit from the past generation that may not necessarily be useful anymore. So uh, you have a podcast as well. Feel free to, uh, wh- where can we find your podcast, Catherine? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I have a podcast, a podcast called In Context. In the podcast, I talk with a range of people ranging from machine learning researchers to entrepreneurs to philosophers in the space thinking about um, how AI works, what it can and can't do, and then also some of the societal and ethical implications of, of these new tools. What's your favorite interview question? Oh, they vary. I, I believe in loving my guests 
And for me to love my guests is to know them personally, to spend some time reading what they've written and listening to what they've talked about prior to our, our conversation and then paying attention to what they say and, and just, you know, letting the conversation go where it may. I love that thing about loving your guests, by the way. That's like a really cool philosophy. And it seems like your whole, if I could summarize your whole vibe, it's like there's a whole love foundation to what you're doing and you're bringing this idea of like the most human thing, right? The most human attitude or emotion or whatever love is, you're bringing that to this sometimes cold seeming technical field. So that's an interesting combination. Yeah, you know, it's a great, when we were first doing the values, like we had a company offsite about a year ago when I joined and it was sort of the initial core team joined. Um, we sat around and we're thinking about the list of the five values and one of them was love people and had the same feelings. Like it was like, do we really want to put this on the website? Does it sound like we're sort of granola Santa Cruz types who are like hippies and we're like, it's all about loving people. But I do think there's something to it that's like, you know, I mean, as I mentioned during our conversation here, it's what's the end goal here? Is this about like enabling people to love one another more and create connections or whatever that may be? Or is it about something sort of, you know, cold and hard and focused on automation and productivity? So it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, and it's been interesting to sort of have that as a company philosophy and mission, like mm -hmm. shape how I'm thinking about what the tech had, you know, how to like how to conceptualize this technology. So, yeah, and this has been a theme of many of my conversations that I've had on this podcast. Like, the faster we run and the further we go technologically, the more important it is to get really human and philosophical and think about what truly matters. For sure. Yeah. Catherine Hume is VP of Product and Strategy at Integrate AI. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for inviting me, and it was it was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Well, speaking of love, I loved that conversation. Check out Catherine's podcast. It's called In Context. But before you do that, stay here for a second. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and a nice review. This show is called Kotecki on Tech, and I am James Kotecki.